Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come into your word, we pray, Lord, for attentive, eager hearts to hear that which you would have to say to us. I pray that you would give me precision, clarity, passion, and power by your spirit. I pray that you would help us to be encouraged and comforted, convicted, and Lord, that many of us would walk away changed people, desirous of obeying you and obeying your word. We ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 3. If you could turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We are in verses 5 through 11 this morning of Colossians chapter 3. We are in the midst of a series that I've titled Christ-Centered Living. And this message in particular is part one of a message that I want to bring before you, an aggressive mortification. An aggressive mortification, part one. Okay, Colossians 3 verse 5 says this, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Well, I'm sure that as you're hearing Um, the front two runners for the presidential campaign, you're both concerned, uh, as I am. Amen. And it's a little bit fun, too. Um, Because all of a sudden, have you noticed, like, everybody's a believer. Everybody's a Christian. Hillary Clinton's a Christian. Donald Trump's a Christian. Obviously, they're making a push for the Christian vote, right? For the conservative vote, if you will, as well. Just been very interesting to hear that. And yet, even though people profess that, even in the political realm, you hear their articulation of their priorities, their principles, guiding principles, um, uh, some of the, the laws that they want to implement. And you wonder and you ask yourself, how is their Christianity, if they are Christians, even applicable to the things that they're talking about? Right? Which tells you something about whether that is a, a real profession or not. Right? You know, one of the beautiful things, as you think about that, about being a Christian, is that it is God by His grace that saves us, and it is God by His grace that sanctifies us, or conforms us into the image of His Son. That is such a comforting truth, even when you hear uh, professions being made like that by political leaders. And, you know, over the years I've discussed with people that if they're not seeing Christ more and more in their lives, either, one, they are deceived about their spiritual condition and not saved, and they need to think about that, or two, God must not be powerful enough to make them like Jesus, whether in leaps and bounds or in baby steps. It's one of those two things. Either you are alive in Christ and growing, or you are dead spiritually and not growing. I can think of no better passage that uh, tells me this than Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. 
And the text says this, For the grace of God has appeared. And we know the personification of that grace was Jesus Christ. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's the grace that saves. But it also does something else. He says, instructing us or teaching us or training us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So the same grace that God saves us by is the same grace that by which He teaches us to say no to ourselves, to say no to our wickedness, and say yes to His Word. God will sanctify us, will He not? But this does not mean that sanctification will be easy, right? Even though God has justified us by faith in Jesus, we are not perfected. We still struggle with sinful desires and have a propensity to live for ourselves. The Christian life, in addition to a wonderful life of joy and experiencing the blessings of Christ here on this earth, the beginning of those first fruits of eternal blessings, even though it is that, it is also on this earth an all-out war against sin, isn't it? An all-out war against sin. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, that our struggle, our hand-to-hand combat against is not against flesh and blood, but against wicked spiritual forces. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, I urge you that you abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. There is an ongoing battle going on in the Christian life for holiness and sanctification. And you and I know this from experience, do we not? Every single day that we resolve to be different by the grace of God as Christians, sin rears its ugly head, does it not? The battle is never-ending. It is relentless. We fight against a relentless enemy. In his book, The Mortification of Sin, John Owen writes to Christians this, Be killing sin... Or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And in that book, The Mortification of Sin, which I highly recommend you to read, great book on sanctification, he talks about how sin never lets up. Just when you think you've defeated your sin, whatever that prevailing dominant sin is, it creeps its ugly head back again into your life. It lays dormant in the human heart, so you must remain vigilant in killing it. In pursuing aggressive uh, mortification to slay that particular sin. And the reason we ought to do this, beloved, is because happiness and joy and the true experience of all that God has for you in Christ Jesus will never be realized to its fullness unless you are slain your sin in the power of the Spirit of God. It just won't. And it's for this reason, this uh, that, that Paul, here in chapter 3, verses 5 and following, is, is going to, to charge these believers to engage in the Christian life in aggressive mortification, in the killing and the slain of their sin, in verses 5 through 11. And the charge to engage in aggressive mortification comes on the heels of verses 1 through 4 that we've seen on the right perspective or mindset that should be the focus of every believer, each of us who are in Christ Jesus. That we should set our eyes, our minds on the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That Christ is our life. 
And if Christ is our life, then His kingdom priorities must be our priorities as well. We've been raised up with Christ. And now building on that right perspective or mindset, he turns his attention to the right practice for living in Christ in verses 5 through 17. And that right practice is really twofold. In verses 5 through 11 on the negative side, he talks about the fact that we must abandon the old life for we have a new identity in Christ. And in verses 12 through 17, on the positive side, we must be appropriating the new life, which is really the character of Christ. And what Paul is doing, mark it, in chapter 3, is that he is now directly applying everything that he has said concerning the preeminence and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Listen, beloved, if Christ is sufficient, and indeed he is, then our sins and our problems and our afflictions and our trials, whatever they may be, must be seen and dealt with through the lenses of Christ's person and His work. The more that we understand who Jesus is and what He has done, the more life of joy we will live and the more we will be equipped to live a holy life. So here in verses 5 through 11... What does he do but charge them with two commands that we must abandon our old life and become like Christ. That's where he he is heading here. Our greatest desire should be to know and to be like Jesus. Amen? You heard a great message last Sunday about that. That the Christian's greatest passion and pursuit and desire should be to know and to love Christ. To become like Him. If this is to happen... I can assure you that we cannot adopt a let go and let God kind of an attitude. We must be engaging in in aggressive mortification and engaging the battle against sin. And so these are two commands that we are charged to obey here by Paul in verses 5 through 11 that we need to obey that we might abandon the old life and be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, which is ultimately what we all want. Amen? So we want to look at this first command here this morning, and then next Sunday we're going to look at the second command. The first command is in verses 5 through 7, and it is this. Christian, put your sin to death. Christian, put your sin to death. This is the first command that he gives here in verses 5 through 7, and I want you to notice that there are four aspects to this particular command given here in verses 5 through 7, okay? First of all, this command has a prerequisite. I want you to notice that in verse 5. I get that from this loaded word here in verse 5. At the beginning of verse 5, therefore, which builds on everything that Paul has said, especially verses 1 through 4, that we have been united with Christ. We have been converted. We've been raised up with Christ. And our focus should be on the things above where Christ is. Positionately, We are justified before God by faith in Jesus Christ. And not only that, but because we've been raised up with Christ, we have power doing it. We have the power to obey this command. Christians have the Spirit of God. And it is by the Spirit that we are able to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Conversely, if you are not a Christian, you don't have that ability. 
And you cannot simply superficially modify your external behavior or follow some external rules. You need to be changed from the inside out so that you can glorify God and be conformed into the image of His Son from the inside out. You must seek the forgiveness of God for your sin and trust in Jesus if you are going to be able to obey this command. But for those of us who are in Christ, for Christians, what comfort? What comfort that if Paul gives this command in verse 5, God will never command us to do anything that we are not able to do, right? We have the power and the ability to obey this particular command. So the prerequisite to this command is that you be born again, that you be a Christian if you are going to put to death the deeds of the flesh, as we will see. Secondly, notice that this command is a serious command. It's a serious command. We know this from the metaphor of verse 5. Look there. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. The New American Standard translates the verb there, consider, but it is literally put to death. Put to death. The ESV translates it, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And it's not that the translation consider is a bad translation. What the translators are trying to keep before us with that particular translation is the previous context, which forms the basis of the command that he gives in verse 5. Paul is essentially saying this, in light of the fact, capital F, in light of the fact that you have died, that you have been buried and raised with Christ, practice who you are in fact. Work it out. Work out your identity in Christ in a marriage, right? Two people become one in the eyes of God. Fact, reality. In the eyes of God, you and your spouse are one before the Lord. But those two people may not always function or live as one. They have to work out their one flesh union in their daily practice. Well, it is similar in the Christian life, is it not? The great doctrine of justification teaches that by faith in Christ, we are positionally accepted before God by faith in Christ instantaneously and definitively as a one-time declaration of God that we are righteous in Christ. It's not a process. But the great doctrine of sanctification teaches that the Christian, having been justified by faith, enters a lifelong process of becoming like Christ in practice, right? That's what Paul is talking about here. We are secure in Christ positionally, but we have a serious responsibility. Look at verse 5. And this serious responsibility is to put to death the members of our earthly body. And by members here, Paul is not saying that the members of our physical body are inherently evil in themselves. Otherwise, he would be agreeing with an, an element of the false teaching of the day, that the body is evil and the spirit is good. What Paul means is that we must put to death the kinds of sinful desires that are carried out by the members of our bodies. We know this because he's going to expand upon the sinful desires and actions that our members carry out in verse 5. Christians are not fully perfected and glorified individuals. And so our hearts at times desire that which is sinful. And our bodies, our members become the willing agents which carry out those sinful desires and passions. 
So this is a very serious command that Paul is giving here. The metaphor is a very, very powerful one. Notice, put to death. He could have said anything else. But he says, put them to death. It implies a battle is taking place. You don't put to death a friend, do you? You put to death an enemy who is not for you but is against you. Notice verse 5 does not say, put the following sins to sleep. Let them take a nap for a while. They're not, a harm. They're not harmful. Put them to rest. Hey, you know what? Snuggle with them for a little while. It's all right. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, put them to death. Put them to death. Deliver a definitive death blow. And we know, experientially speaking, that this is going to be a gradual process, right? Lifelong process. But nevertheless, he's calling us to, to shoot for that. To completely eliminate those sins from our lives. And by the way, he's not making a suggestion, is he? He's not making a suggestion. He's not saying, oh, oh, pretty please, Colossian believers. Would you consider, would you, would you pray about this? Prayerfully consider whether you want to do this or not. He's not saying that. He's, it, this is a command from God. This is a directive. Listen, for our good and His glory, beloved. And I would add, for our joy. Because you know what? Sin, prevailing sin, brings harm and sadness and loss of joy and loss of the fullness of what God has in store for you. Put these sins to death. Now notice this command is specific. It's specific. And I love this. In a culture in Paul's day, similar to our culture, that generally accepted these types of sins that he's going to um, highlight here, Paul calls them out as vices that should be put to death and should not even be named among believers. And it is the same for us. Far from blending in with the culture around us, Christians are called to be holy to be set apart from sin and wickedness. And if we are going to live out Christ-centered type of living, as in verses 1 through 4, then these sexual sins must be slayed in our lives. And that is the category of sin that he goes after here. In fact, verse 5 can literally, the sense is this, put to death the members of your earthly body with reference to. And then he's going to give a list of five vices. Look at verse 5. He says, first of all, immorality. Immorality. The Greek word here is porneia. Porneia, from which we get pornography. It is a general word for every form, every expression of sexual sin that you can think of. What does it include? It includes such things as fornication, sex outside of marriage. It includes adultery. Any type of sexual activity with someone, not your own spouse. It includes homosexuality, sexual involvement or engaging with somebody of the same gender, bestiality, pedophilia, any other type of sexual fulfillment outside of the bounds of marriage is all included in this general umbrella of porneia. It is destructive. So, well, that's easy. I don't do any of those things that you mentioned. None of those really apply to me. Well, can I make an application to this? To our present day struggle as men and many women as well to things like soft pornography and hard pornography? Any type of social media like Facebook or Instagram or the internet where you are engaging in, in, in selfish gratification via your eyes? 
anything like that would be included under this. And beloved, listen, in our culture, it's becoming more and more difficult to draw a line within those things, right? It's very easy for us to justify and explain away so much of what we do on social media because everybody else is doing it. But as Christians, the issue is never, ever, ever how much can I explain away or justify my behavior because of what others are doing in my culture or even in the church. The issue is how holy can I be? How set apart can I be? Not how close can I get to the fire so that uh, unless I get burned, we want to stay as, clo- as, as far away from sin as we possibly can. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22 says, Abstain from every form of evil. Evil in any shape. Evil in any form. Evil in any nuance. Stay away from it. Anything that could potentially become a stumbling block to you, to mortifying the sins of the flesh and the power of the Spirit, kill them. Put them away from you. Abstain from them. Pornography currently is a multi-million dollar industry. You know what that should tell you and I? That people, passions, and desires run after that. That's why these individuals can make so much money, millions and billions of dollars, because people's hearts run after those things. And you know what it is at the end of the day? A corruption of God's good and beautiful gift of sex within the bounds of marriage between a man and a woman. See, our sinful, wicked hearts, beloved, our propensity is to any good gift from God becomes a wicked thing in our hands. We corrupt it. And the one thing that God created for the, for the reproduction and the pleasure of a husband and a wife has been corrupted, and that thing is called pornography. It causes serious harm and damage to marriages, doesn't it? And to men and women, it leads to the dehumanization of people exploitation it leads people eventually to murder and suicide when they become so fixated upon those things and that idol of worship and divorce and sadness and loss of effectiveness even that's all the fruit of pornea beloved paul says put it to death put it to death he says in verse 5 also impurity impurity the greek word is akatharsia akatharsia from where we get our word catharsis which means the act of purifying or cleansing. But here it appears with the alpha privative, which means negation, acatharsis, unclean, impure, not clean, not pure. In the New Testament, impurity refers to any kind of immoral or unclean sexual conduct or activity. Its specific focus has to do with impure behavior, not in line with God's beautiful design. And I want you to notice, up until this point, Paul is dealing primarily with behavior and conduct, the expression of sexual sin unto our conduct. But now, with the next three terms, he gets even deeper now. We often focus on the external manifestation of sexual sin and what is visibly seen by us, but we ignore the fuel that drives that, that drives that activity and that conduct. And that is the world that the Christian needs to live in. The inclinations, the motivations of the heart so that they don't find expression unto our conduct, beloved, and unto our speech. And that's where Paul is heading here. He's digging deeper. Didn't our Lord Jesus Christ do that, by the way, in his day? 
essentially telling the religious leaders, you guys are always focusing on the acts, the external acts. And it's not that those things don't matter, but he says even with reference to adultery, whoever looks upon a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his what? In his heart. He dug deeper. He said, that's where the issue is. You want to eliminate that external stuff? Deal with the heart. Deal with the inclinations of your own heart. And Paul is doing the same thing here. He gets below the surface. Notice in verse 5. Passion. Passion. Pathos. Passion refers to a strong emotion or of desire or, or a craving. Passion is that unstoppable pool or force that does not rest until it is satisfied with what it wants. If you ever get hungry and your stomach starts growling, I've been there many a time. And maybe you're sitting in your living room and you're hungry and your stomach is growling and all of a sudden, there's the aroma. The scent coming from the kitchen, right? Your wife is making carne asada burritos, right? With refried beans and Latino rice. Okay, for some of you, lasagna, okay? Lasagna, okay? Or casserole. Or for you youth, pizza, okay? You're hungry and you smell this and it's almost as if you're enraptured by this. There's this, this scent and you're being enticed and allured and it's almost like you start floating from the living room to the kitchen. Do, 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 right? And you make your way over to the kitchen and you partake of that wonderful, wonderful food and your stomach is satisfied. The craving, the pool was leading you in that direction to partake of that food. But eventually, what's going to happen? You're going to be really full, but eventually you're going to get hungry again, right? (laughs) You're never going to be satisfied. But you craved it and there was that pool towards partaking. That is the same way it is, beloved, with sin, isn't it? And even sexual sin as well. There's this pool, this unstoppable force that doesn't rest until you partake of your sin. And then you realize that it doesn't deliver because you're going to be hungry again for it later on. This craving is going to come back. It's never satisfied. He says evil desire. Look at verse 5 as well. Passion, evil desire, epithumia. The word translated desire can be either neutral or negative. But Paul says it's evil desire here. A sinful desire. In this context, it it means a sexual desire for that which is forbidden. See, verse 5 is going deeper now. Behavior that is sexually immoral or impure arises from this strong passion and evil desire. Isn't that what James in chapter 1, verses 14 through 15 says? He says, don't blame God for temptation. God is not the author of temptation. He can't solicit you to do evil. He tests people, but he does not tempt you or solicit you to evil, for that would be him not being a good God who's after your best. Where does temptation come from then? James 1.14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, his own evil desire. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Then when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Notice, we are tempted by our own lust. Lust, evil desire in our own hearts. And then this lust conceives a baby. And you name the baby sin. And then that sin, that baby called sin, grows and grows and grows. And when that sin is accomplished or it is fully grown, he says, it brings forth death. 
All sin ultimately leads to death. That's where it leads you. But it all began with the desire, wasn't it? The evil desire in the heart. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said that the problem with the human heart is not that it desires. The problem with the human heart is what it desires and why it desires it. Not that it desires things, but what it desires and why the human heart desires it. And that's why when you come to know Christ, what happens? God puts new desires within you. Now you want to be holy. You want to be like Jesus. You want to love other people, even though you may struggle with that. You want to, you want to do everything in accordance with the Word of God. And there is ongoing fight now. But before, there wasn't any fight. You would just give in to your desires. That's all you, your passions. And it drove you to sinful conduct and behavior. But when we come to know the Lord, there is a new master in town, right? In our own hearts. Our culture, beloved, may herald the worship of sexual immorality, but God's word says, put it to death. Call it for what it is and put it to death. It is harmful to you. It is hurtful to other people. Flee immorality, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee immorality. Every other sin which a man commits is outside his own body, but the immoral man or woman sins against his own body. There is a sense in which sexual immorality harms you and I and others like no other sin. It brings deadly, devastating consequences to our personal lives and to the lives of other people. You say, Kempis, I get it. I get it. How? How do I put to death my sinful desires and sinful habits which I hate? First of all, listen to this. Be comforted by the change that God has already made in you. Be comforted by the change that God has already made in you so that you're even asking the question, how do I overcome these desires and these habits? I want to be like Jesus. The fact that you're even doing that means that there's life in you. Give praise to God and be comforted for that change, beloved. That's where it all begins. You have a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6, verses 11 and 12 say this, Even so... Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's your position. You are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you obey its lusts. Paul, beloved, could not give that command or the command in Colossians 3 verse 5 to put your members, your your sins to death unless you had the power to do so, right? God does not command us to do anything that He has not empowered you as a believer by His Spirit and His Word to obey. Be comforted by the change that God has made in your heart, first and foremost. Secondly, live dependently on the Holy Spirit. Live dependently on the Holy Spirit. If there is anything true about the Christian, the genuine believer, is that you and I are to no longer live dependent upon ourselves. Before, it was all about selfish pleasures, selfish idolatry. It was all about walking in dependence and self-sufficiency in self. But now we walk in and by the Spirit. The Spirit has given us life. The Spirit has empowered us to put sin to death. And only by the strength of the Spirit of God, beloved, can we stand. Only by the Spirit of God. Galatians 5.24 
Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He's speaking to believers. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We live by the Spirit. Before we were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, having no hope and without God in the world. Now God has stepped in and deposited His Spirit in us. We live by the Spirit, spiritually speaking, and we have to be walking by the Spirit of God. Step and step and in tune with the Spirit of God in submission to Him. Walk in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, submit yourself to the sword of the Spirit. If you have the indwelling spirit, guess who prim- or what primarily the Spirit of God uses to sanctify you. The Word of God. The Spirit of God. Or the Spirit of God uses the Word of God. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 6. He calls the Word of God the sword of the Spirit. Listen, beloved. This book is not a book of dead tradition. This book is alive. It is alive. It is the one book that you can count on the fact that whenever you're exposed to it, it will grip you and it will not let you go. If you come with a teachable heart, and even when you don't, down the line, 15, 20, 25, 30 years, people have attested to the fact that when they memorize Scripture decades before, the Word of God never let them go. It will grip you. It's got power. It's alive. It's alive. Isn't that what Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says? That the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. You ever try to dodge a two-edged sword? It's going to cut, isn't it? It's going to pierce. Piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. Of both joints and marrow. And able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is effective. The word of God, beloved, searches the soul. That's what it does. It convicts. It cuts to the core of who we are. That's why we must saturate our minds with the Word of God, right? Colossians 3.16. We're going to see this beautiful verse in a few weeks. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let it make its home in your heart. Cling to His promises and to the Gospel and to those things in His Word that are His will and drench and, and, and saturate yourself in those things. Bask in the riches of the Word of God who reveal Him. Fourthly, run to Christ. Run to Christ. Isn't it amazing how in moments of temptation and in the midst of our struggle with sin, we run to everything but Christ. We run elsewhere. We run to food. We run to Facebook, we run to porn, we run to other people, but we don't go to our high priest, the very one who has the place of power. We don't go to the power source. We go to everybody else and everything else but the power source. Jesus is our high priest, isn't he? Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He wants you to come to Him, beloved. Go to your high priest. Go to the one who intercedes before the Father on your behalf. Go to Him. Be comforted by your change. 
Live dependent on the Spirit. Submit yourself to the Word of God. Run to Christ. Fifthly, take radical measures against your sin. Take radical measures against your sin to starve it. To starve it. There was a terrible stench just two to three weeks ago in our living room. Terrible. I mean, it was getting so, so bad. And of course, we have a toddler running around our house. So I'm thinking, is there a diaper somewhere in this living room that we need to search out when the world's going on here? This thing is getting worse and worse and worse. And of course, we came to find out that there was actually a dead rat on our roof, stuck in there. The uh, pest control guy came over and he discovered it. It was corroded and all of that. It had been there for who knows how long. It just took over the whole house, right? And um, what happened was this guy had come just a few months before that to seal everything around the perimeter of the house with vents, seal everything. And there was this rat that was trapped in there and it starved and it could not get out. All of its life source, lifeline, if you will, had been completely sealed. Listen, that is the picture of the pest called sin that we must do the same thing with, beloved. Starve it. Shut down all lifeline, the life source to your sin. It doesn't do you any good to be reading the Word of God, to be quote-unquote pursuing Christ, and yet you're feeding your sin. Take radical measures against it. Take radical measures against it. Isn't that what Jesus was getting at in Matthew chapter 5? Verse 29, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. He wasn't talking about your literal eye, right? Otherwise, none of us in here would have any eyeballs. You know what he meant. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it from you. For it would be better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. In other words, put sin to death. And that requires that you take severe, desperate measures against your sin. Starve out your sin. Starve it out. That those desires and passions, beloved, don't find an outlet to express themselves. Satan is looking for a stronghold, isn't he? looking for any opportunity to get you, to make you fall. And it's going to be okay with him if he, if he succeeds 99 times, as long as it's the 100th time that he gets you. And down on the floor you are, spiritually speaking. That's what he wants. Romans thirteen fourteen. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust, its evil desires. Don't feed it. Don't provide uh, food, nourishment for that particular sin. Starve it. If you have a problem with social media, and every time you go to social media, there's a problem because you, you begin to feed your desire for materialism and attention, and you want vanity and self-glory and promoting yourself, maybe it's time for you to take a fast from your social media. Starve it. Don't give your sin what it wants. Nothing wrong with Facebook or social media in and of itself. But if it's causing you to sin, it's become a stumbling block to you, then you need to do everything you can to be holy, beloved. Set it aside. You're struggling with your purity. 
Remove anything that feeds that desire on social media, on your device. There's nothing wrong with the device in and of itself. But if it's a stumbling block to you and it causes you to run to certain things on your your smartphone or whatever, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? It would be better for you to lose something like that than for you to go to hell. Think about it. Think about what he's saying. Gossip. If you have a, a struggle with, with your tongue, instead of taking your concerns to people, how about praying for people? How about getting together with others to pray for one another? And in doing so, you're bringing now the concerns before the one with a capital O who is able to bring about change. Because I can assure you, the person that you're talking to, if it's not the person that is struggling with their sin or who has offended you, they can't do anything about what you, your problem. They can't, ultimately. Only God can, right? Make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Sixthly, be accountable to other Christians. Be accountable to other Christians. I can't tell you, beloved, how many Christians think that they can become like Christ in isolation and secrecy away from the people of God, from the church. As elders, we get to see that firsthand. Firsthand. People struggling with things. And then when you ask them and they're in severe counseling cases, it's like, how did it get to this point? Who was in your life? Generally speaking, nobody. It was secret. It was isolation. And no matter how much we preach and how much we counsel people to be committed to the local body and practice to one another's in the context of biblical relationships, even then people are disobedient. And it leads to struggles because nobody knows what you're going through. Hebrews 10.25 says, not, We should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As we anticipate the return of the King, King Jesus, the exalted Christ, God has given us one another, His church, as an instrument of mercy. And, and there's this, this beautiful, mysterious, wonderful role that the church plays in your life, in your sanctification, to get you along in the race in anticipation of the King, so you make it to the end of the race and win the race. You must be in one another's lives, beloved. Be accountable to other Christians. So how do you engage in mortifying your sin? Be comforted by your, own, your new identity. You're not who you used to be. Be dependent upon the Spirit of God. Submit yourself to the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Run to Christ, your high priest. Take desperate measures, radical measures against your sin to starve it. And be accountable to other believers. Be accountable to other believers. And I can assure you it will be a process, a lifelong process, but God and His people will be with you every step of the way. Amen? Every step of the way. This is how we must fight. And the reason we must fight this way, aggressively, beloved, mortifying the sins of the flesh, is because of what he says in verse 5. He adds greed. He says, and greed. Because sexual sin is never satisfied, we must continue to fight and take desperate measures against it in the power of the Spirit of God. Greed is this insatiable desire to have more and more and more. You want to know where sexual immorality comes from in all its expressions? It comes from a greedy, covetous heart that desires and craves for more and more and more. And you're never content with what or who you have. 
Always looking elsewhere. Always feeding those desires and sinful passions and cravings because you're never satisfied with who God has given you. So ultimately, it is an attack on the character of God and on He who has given you a good and perfect gift for you to compromise in that area of sexual sin, if you're, especially if you're married. People who are enslaved to sexual sin experience this. This greed, covetousness. That no matter how thrilling and exciting some sexual sin was at some point, eventually what happens? The thrill and excitement fades away, right? So in an effort to satisfy your sexual appetites, you spiral down even deeper and downward into more corrupt and debased sin. And eventually you find yourself engaging in thought and action in sins that you would never have imagined getting involved in. Why? Because you're trying to to satisfy the sexual appetite. Sexual sin is greedy, beloved. It never satisfies. Have you ever wondered why movie stars and actors or actresses who marry uh, externally attractive people, eventually they're divorced. Few of them stay together. Why? Because it doesn't matter how attractive that movie star that they married is or that actor or actress, they're never content. They're going to go be with somebody else eventually, right? Charm is deceitful, uh, beauty is vain, but the woman who fears the Lord or the man who fears the Lord, they shall be praised, right? It's about that, about fearing God, not about the externals. See, even in our entertainment realm, we see people greedy and covetous. Remember King David, 2 Samuel 11? He had access to any woman in the kingdom. Not by God's design, by the way. He compromised in that area. It was never God's design that those kings would get involved with multiple women, right? But nevertheless, he could have had access to any woman in the kingdom. But who did he want once he saw her? Bathsheba. That's right, Bathsheba. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. He had to have her. He had to have her. But the act of his adultery was only the expression, beloved, of his greedy, covetous heart. And it led to all kinds of devastation and consequences in his life, right? I often wonder, what if David would have been able to see in a video the future consequences of his sin and everything that happened? Death, mutiny, tearing of his kingdom away from him, death of a baby, rebellion of Absalom, so forth and so forth. What if he would have been able to see all the consequences in the future? Would he have done what he did? We'll never know, right? But oftentimes in our greed and in our covetous hearts, we don't even care about the consequences of our own sin. That's how how horrifying this kind of sin is. Finally, notice all of this amounts to idolatry. Idolatry. Sexual sin becomes an idol it becomes the object of, of worship. And, and how does that happen, that it becomes the object of our worship? It's when our passions and our evil desire becomes all-consuming and all you can think of is sexual sin and sexual pleasure outside of the bounds of God's design. It dominates your every thought, your every look, your every relationship. Sexual sin becomes the Lord of every moment and day of your life, thus the idol of your worship. It consumes you. It drives you. It fuels you for a time, but it will never satisfy you. It's idolatry. Ultimately, what you crave and what you desire, beloved, is what you worship. 
See, beneath the ugliness and debased behavior of the immoral person is self-worship and idolatry, right? Men and women were created to worship God supremely. Sin gets in the way of that. Sin causes us to have this misplaced worship, to have misdirected desires. Again, the problem with people is not that we desire. The problem is what we desire and why we desire it. And that's why the cross, listen to me, the cross of Christ at its core solves the problem of our misplaced worship. When you turn from your sins and you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you're forgiven and you are reconciled to your maker, now you can live for the worship of God. Now you can do that. Set apart for His purposes. Your passion and your pursuit is going to be a la the sermon last week, Philippians 3, 10 to 14. It's going to be to know Christ. That's going to be your passion. That's what the cross of Christ came to do, that you may feast upon God as you were designed to do so, that you may love Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sin gets in the way of that, beloved. Sin gets in the way of that. And ultimately, it's idolatry. Idolatry because you were created to worship God supremely. So this first command has a prerequisite. It's a serious command and it's specific to sexual sin. Fourthly, this command has an incentive. It's got an incentive. Notice verse 6. What should motivate us to put all forms of sexual immorality to death? Look at verse 6. For it is because of these things that that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. That little phrase there, upon the sons of disobedience, some older manuscripts don't contain that phrase, but it does appear in Ephesians 5, 6. Listen, according to Romans 1, 18, we are presently experiencing the wrath of God. We are, the, the wrath of God is presently being revealed from heaven against all wickedness in the world and that God has given people over to their sin. They wanted their sin. God is saying, go for it. Go, and that is an evidence of the wrath of God. But the fullness of God's wrath is coming. It's coming. God's wrath is God's settled and righteous indignation toward those who rebel against His loving rule. Listen to that again. God's wrath is His settled and righteous indignation toward those who rebel against His good and loving rule. And Paul says, God's coming wrath toward those who practice such things and do not repent of them should motivate you to put sexual sin to death because the wrath of God is coming upon people who do not turn from those sins. And he gives a further motivation, doesn't he, in verse 7. Why? Because this is no longer who you are, believer. Look at verse 7. And in them... In these types of sins, you also once walked or conducted yourself in accordance to those things. When you were living in them, they were your life. You derived derived pleasure from them, fulfillment from them. Your heart's desires and passions ran after those things. You were living in them. They were characteristics of, of the type of a person that you were. But now, what does chapter 3 verse 4 say? Christ to the believer is our life. He's our life. He's our everything. He's our supreme, preeminent one. He is our Savior and our Lord. He is our Master now. Christ is our life, beloved. We are no longer the same people anymore. Now as a Christian, you are different. You're no longer a child of wrath. 
separate from the life of God, no longer. You're a child of God. You want to know why people rebel against God? Especially in the area of sexual sin? It is because they don't fear God. They don't fear God. The God who created them, who owns them, they don't want Him to rule over them. They want to sit on the throne of their own hearts. They don't want to acknowledge God the Creator or live for Him or follow His commandments. That's what it comes down to. They don't fear God. But the fact is that one horrifying day, as Paul says here, God's wrath will visit them in fullness and hold them accountable for a lifetime of misplaced and misdirected desires and passions and worship. He's coming. The wrath of God is coming. Why should you put to death all forms of sexual sin? Because your very eternal destiny depends upon it. Listen to me. If you are not actively and aggressively mortifying your sinful desires and actions, you profess to know the Lord and you're comfortable for extended periods of time in a state of unrepentant sexual sin. Either you are terribly deceived about your true spiritual condition and you or you have not been born again. You're not a Christian. Who God saves by His grace, He sanctifies, beloved. By His Spirit, whether in baby steps or in leaps and bounds, but you will see the fruit of the Spirit's work in your life. We're not justified by our works. We're justified by faith in Christ alone. That is the foundation. The foundation is Christ's finished work. But I can assure you that if you're genuinely justified by faith in Jesus Christ and God has saved you from the inside, fruit will be evident in your life. It will be evident. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that a true believer is in a battle, right? A struggle. A relentless battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. The Christian is not cuddling with the enemy. You want to be holy. You want to be like Jesus. You want to obey God. You want to love God. You want to love His people. You want to be obedient. But you're in the midst of a battle for that. If that is your heart today, that is a good place to be. I can assure you, unless you're comfortable with your sin, and that says something about where you're at spiritually. See, some people live so lackadaisical and so passive about their Christianity, right? As if nothing is required of them. Uh, It's all about grace. Grace, 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 right? Who cares about the way that I live my life? They forget about the fact that that same grace, Titus 2, 11 through 14, instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. To be holy, to be set apart. But some people, it's all about grace. Who cares if I continue to look at pornography and never repent and confess it? Who cares if I continue engaging in sexual sin outside of marriage? As long as I never get caught, it's all good. Who cares... If I make a willing choice, a willing choice to practice homosexuality and redefine God's design for marriage between a man and a woman as if I have the authority to do so when only God has the authority to do that. Or what is worse, living a life of secretly indulging in a thought life of sexual perversion or coddling secret passion and evil desire, as long as you don't do the external acts, you're okay. Beloved, listen, that too is destructive to your soul. 
And eventually it will come out. It will come out. We are told in 2 Corinthians 10.5 to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We battle by the Spirit against sin in our thought life so that it does not make its way onto our behavior and onto our actions. That's where it begins. We need to count the cost. Count the cost. Scripture warns us against professing Christ and living in unrepentant sexual sin. Ephesians 5.5 for this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, those who practice sex outside of marriage, excuse me, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, that is men who by perversion and choice practice feminine characteristics and women who do the same, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. What is he saying? That those who by choice and pattern live this way don't belong in the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. And the question that we would ask, is there hope? Is there hope for me this morning? Is there hope for me if this is who I am? Can the, the most wicked, immoral, and more, most perverse sinner ever be forgiven? And the answer, beloved, is a resounding and celebratory yes in Christ. Yes. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11 says, And such were some of you. In other words, you were the deceived, the fornicators, the idolaters, the adulterers, the effeminate, the homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, who were not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you believers, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Can I tell you, God is in the business of rescuing and forgiving the worst of sinners. I was there, beloved, violent aggressor, immoral, everything you can think of, violent, hateful, pursuing after my own pleasures. And God saved me. He forgives sinners in Christ Jesus. He can save you, but you must confess your sin, trust Christ, and resolve to abandon your sin of immorality and any other sin. He can do it. God saves the worst of sinners, does he not? Come to Christ that you may have rest from your own sin and forgiveness. And for us who are Christians, what is God's will for us? I'll close with this. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse three. This is the will of God, believer, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's his will for you. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 3 says that immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. We are holy ones. We must not be known for practicing these things. And in the power of the Spirit of God, by God's holy word, we are able to overcome. Amen? Let's pray together and then my brother's going to come on up. Father, by your Spirit and by your word, Help us to take these things to heart. Help us to be people who truly, in the power of your Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Father, if there's anyone here this morning 
any believer who is living in unrepentant sin in this area, Lord, I pray that you may move in their hearts to confess this and that, Lord, this would be a new day for them into the future. If there's anyone here who has not given their life to you, I pray that, Father, they would abandon these types of sins and recognize that the only one who satisfies is Jesus Christ now and for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.